Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. And welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the outstanding Dr. Jack Kreindler. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Human Performance. Jack is a physician, physiologist, and serial tech entrepreneur. Since 97, he's been instrumental in the design, architecture, and leadership of many innovative tech ventures in healthcare, including Douglas Adams H2G2.com, acquired by the BBC, Vilife, acquired by Cigna, to name a couple, while still practicing as an emergency physician from 2002 to 2006. Jack's incubator, Blue Orange Technologies, developed the core technology platform for enterprises and high-growth startups, including Visual DNA, Genie D, uh, DB, and Dictate IT. In 2007, Jack founded CHHP, that is the Center for Health and Human Performance, in London's Harley Street. The Center for Health and Human Performance is renowned for their work with athletes, complex cases, and celebrities taking on extreme challenges. Jack also lectures internationally on the future of medicine and is a guest presenter and expert for CNBC, Sky Sport, ET Sport, and the BBC. So, Jack, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Glad you could be here with us. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Absolutely. So what made you decide to get into the medical sector? Well, uh, funnily enough, I uh, was more interested in becoming a fine artist, actually, uh, when really? I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, 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 I was awesome. one of the very, very few people to do uh, art, fine art and design as a, what we call A-level. Those are the kind of exams that you take when you're 18 in the UK. And I, um, I peculiarly was the only person in the history of UK medical school to be allowed into medical school with uh, two sciences and fine art. <laughs> no <laughs> so, kidding. Yeah. So, wow. so actually, I, cool. actually, my my interest in in visualization is a very is a, is an on running thread really in my career in history, both in in medicine and on the tech side of things too. So, I why did I do medicine? I did medicine because my mum uh, said she, that she would literally kill me if I didn't do. <laughs> something <laughs> like medicine uh, because I was really determined to go into art and design. Well, hey, life threats tend to work from time to time. So yes, uh, uh, threats threats to life are indeed a, a good motivating force to, to study something which you do think is interesting. Um, and let's face it, let's face it, it's pretty hard to practice medicine having just done sort of uh, stuff in a, you know, on your own. Uh, scribbling away, you have to learn it. You have to study it. There is a there is a huge tradition. There is a lot of uh, uh, knowledge, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to carry on doing the sort of the more creative work uh, without having to go through uh, many, many, many years of of medical training and practice. So I've managed to marry the two things together now, which is really wonderful. Oh, that's brilliant! And you've brought your artistic side into this entrepreneurial world which obviously we talk a lot about a lot of things on the podcast, you know, things that are going wrong, things that could go better, things that, that we're doing great. And there's no doubt that innovation keeps the healthcare system moving forward. What would you say a hot topic that needs to be on every healthcare leader's agenda today? And how are you guys approaching it at your center? So the, what we do at our center is, is essentially the application of human performance science and elite sports medicine 
to not only help those who kind of like are elite athletes and help them get better and run faster and climb quicker and so on, we also apply that to help those with the most complex, chronic and serious conditions. So essentially, it turns out that treating people like athletes by looking after their, uh, their training and their uh, nutrition and their recovery and their sleep and their headspace and their biomechanics and so on, it turns out that that really gets you amazing results, better than a lot of drugs, blockbuster, <laughs> mm-hmm. blockbuster breakthrough drugs. So just the sort of principle of treating people like athletes and doing that efficiently, economically and holistically doesn't just help athletes, it helps even the sickest cancer patients too. So what are the main areas and grand challenges in healthcare that you can apply that to? Well, it turns out a lot of things. It has applications in sort of diabetes, metabolic disease, the obesity crisis. It has applications in the complex chronic diseases that we are facing uh, more of and will increasingly be crippled by, I think, in in our healthcare systems as time goes, goes by. And they are, yeah, things like congestive heart failure, uh, chronic obstructive airway disease, and cancer. So there's a great many applications for not just fixing stuff but also optimizing the human body and its own ability to repair and be resilient and perform. That is, uh, yeah, it's a very, very wide-reaching set of applications. And it's not fluffy either. The important thing to remember here is that over the last decade or so, we've begun to really understand the metabolic, the hormonal, the immunological basis for why being fit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in, the, in this sort of very simplistic term, at a molecular and a, cell, at a cellular level, why it's so important in both health and disease. Super fascinating. And definitely in need of trying things that work. The number of patients with uh, chronic diseases continues to grow we got to do something differently. So very fascinating that you guys are taking this approach and sort of turning it on its head by way of like who the candidate for it is. So very, very intriguing there. Can you give the listeners an example of how your organization's creating results by doing things differently? Sure. I think if you were to take a standard model of uh, healthcare, it's very much based on good evidence that's developed through uh, randomized controlled trials, uh, usually sponsored mainly as a result of a new drug that can be patented, a new agent, a new treatment, a new therapy. And once those agents, treatments, therapies, pills, potions, and so on, um, have been given license to be sold, then that effectively incrementally improves the way which we treat a particular condition. Our approach is very much uh, more of uh, an integrative, adaptive approach. It's what you do to improve an athlete's performance. And it's what you do when there are lots of complex things going on that all interrelate with each other. That's very hard to sort of put your finger on one thing that's gone wrong. And so, you know, for us, we, we collect a lot of data about a lot of different topics. So for example, we will collect a lot of data physiologically about um, how the a person's body is functioning, put them, you know, on an exercise uh, rig and, and do heart and lung and metabolism testing on their uh, physiology to see just how fit they are, where the holes in their physiology are, how we can improve those things through the right kind of training, the right kind of recovery, optimizing sleep, optimizing nutrition, micronutritionally, and so on, and then develop a program of training and nutrition and sleep and recovery and getting your headspace right, which we don't make assumptions about. We test and then we adapt. And it's just like we would do automatically if we were flying an airplane. We wouldn't make an assumption that we plotted was exactly the right route. We would absolutely test, you know, meticulously test in real time. In the case of aviation, it is literally in real time, exactly what it is 
that we've treated. Is it working? Is it not? Is the condition getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it staying the same? What is the reports from the patient? Not just what do we see in our exercise test lab or in our blood tests or, or uh, whatever laboratory exams we're doing. And then we would adapt. It's exactly what you do to keep an airplane safely and efficiently flying in the sky. Why don't we do that in every case in medicine? Previously, impossible. We wouldn't have the ability to collect lots of biomarkers and do lots of things efficiently and economically. And we didn't have the analytics to be able to do those adaptions in real time. But now we do. And I think we're moving into an era of medicine where there's going to be no excuse for personalizing what it is that we do and adapting it in a much more high frequency way. That does not mean, though, that we will lose the very great advances that we have gained from doing randomized controlled trials. But it does mean that when we combine those things to treat complex diseases and complex systems, that we also employ all of the tricks that we've learned in economics, in aviation, in the way that we like protect our countries using military security. There are countless numbers of examples of different areas where we where we use assumptions and then high-frequency adaptions to what we do. And we have to start doing that in medicine. And I think that's really where we have started and where I hope the rest of medicine will go. No, I think it's definitely an interesting approach. And, and as you've worked with uh, various different companies, Jack, it's interesting. I always love to hear the story from entrepreneurs like yourself of a time that you failed, a, t- a setback that you had that you learned so much from. Which moment would you like to share And what lesson did come out of that? Absolutely, yeah. So I'll give a very, uh, I mean, it's a failure, but in a sense, it's not. But for me, to a certain extent, if you're going to do something in venture and business where you've got shareholders and investors that have put in, you know, hard-earned cash into your venture and you don't return that, then that for me, in a sense, is a failure, even if uh, what you learn from it uh, turns out to be very good for science and, and medicine. But I'll give you an example. In 2012, after I left the Singularity University Medicine Program, I realized that there were a lot of things, devices, connected Uh, biosensor technologies that were rapidly becoming of the quality that we would need to do the same kind of stuff as we do in our lab that could be done at home. And that one of the grand challenges, which is this astonishing trillion dollar cost of hospitalization and treatment for complex chronic disease patients, and probably, you know, most people estimate that maybe half a trillion dollars of those costs could be avoided if we could early detect uh, the deterioration of those people and then treat them prior to them coming crashing into hospital. That project we called Centrion, and Centrion was there to take simple biosensor data from from these exponentially advancing technologies, these wearables, these biosensors, which we didn't build any of. We just used the very latest ones there. We built a wonderful, yeah. yeah, and we built a very wonderful interface that allowed doctors to type in their own rules as to what they suspected they wanted to know about or rather the times when they when they would want to be alerted to when someone was deteriorating give an example like you know tell me if the person's blood pressure it decreases or increases 10% over a moving average of the last uh, you know 3 weeks or something right. but they would they would be able to write that stuff in natural language as a set of rules an ever growing set of rules uh, using, you know, looking at blood pressure, weight, oxygen saturations, respiratory rate, time in bed, wobbliness on their feet, heart rate, heart rate variability, all of those wonderful things. And then when those alerts were triggered, then essentially you'd be able to act early before the patient comes crashing into hospital and save an astonishing amount of money and pain for health systems and patients alike. Sounds like a great idea. And we found out pretty quickly 
that we could detect five days in advance with very, very minimal false alarms that patients would end up coming crashing into hospital. Potential savings, astonishing. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of billions. But guess what? After $20 million worth of spending money developing this incredible technology, which did not need to be, which the FDA said they did not need Mm -hmm. us to go back to them every time we improve the algorithms, I'll explain why in a minute, sort of a small stroke of genius on our part, so we could rapidly iterate these algorithmic uh, sets of rules, we discovered that there was nothing in the healthcare systems to reimburse doctors or clinicians or hospital systems for keeping people out of hospital. There was the 30-day readmissions thing, which, you know, if you come crashing in, then of course, you know, if we can try and help them stay out of hospital, there is that, yes. But there is no code for reimbursement for acting early before there's an actual thing that you can diagnose. This is pre-diagnosis. Which is a big problem. Which is an interesting thing because none of us have been trained to act in advance of something going wrong. We only act after it's gone wrong. And even though we were able to really rapidly iterate these rule sets, which was a really remarkable thing, so it was human language in, and then you get this wonderful black box machine learning system that spits out new rules in the same natural language grammar as the rules were written in, which is the real trick. And the doctors would look at them and understand them and go, oh, I get that. That means that, yeah, well, I like those new rules, which happened to be much, much better than human expert rules. By the way. <laughs> um, yeah. And so the system got better and better really, really quickly. We were able to prove that we, we could detect with minimal false alarms that people were going to be sick. And yet there was no way for the health system, there, was, there were no people trained to be able to act upon these. And the best thing for how often, whenever they called up one of their patients to just show them what the recordings were, mm-hmm. but not act intelligently beyond just the data stuff that they saw on the screen. So that was a really that was a really big kind of lesson learned is that actually it doesn't matter how big the challenge is, how well the technology uh, can suit the solution to that challenge and how much potential savings and loss of suffering you can achieve if the system if the platform is not there and the people are not you know, ready to make those changes legally or professionally or otherwise, if the reimbursements aren't there, if the incentives aren't there, then you'll hit brick walls. And while that technology and the people that were involved in that amazing project have gone off to you know, become very, very important people in places like Verily and, you know, the, and the such, just for me, a disappointment to sort of have to have learned the hard way that actually the tech is not the hard bit, the health system's the hard bit. Yes. Yeah, that's such a great, great story, Jack, and uh, and definitely a, a great lesson to have learned. If the technology is not paired with the payer system, it's it's just not going to take off. It just it can't. You know, in the end, you do have to produce a business that's sustainable, and um, and definitely appreciate you sharing that. But a lot of great things came out of it. So you've now pivoted to the center and um, you're using some of these, you know, biomarkers, these different ways of, of getting things done in this uh, center for excellence. What would you say your proudest leadership experience has been to date with that? Well, first of all, the, the, the CHHP has sort of predated any of the kind of um, stuff that we've done with Centrion and, uh, and, and other 
machine learning projects uh, using data to earlier and better predict stuff. So really, that's oh, been has. Kind oh, of I'm sorry about bedrock. that. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. It's, uh, I think in, in 2000, we've been around for 11 years at my institute now. We have 40 scientists and specialists working there. And, and really, that's been a kind of a bedrock for us to test and hypothesize as to how our kind of approach to integrative high frequency and adaptive medicine can help do help projects who can take those kinds of principles and do them at scale hence centrion but yeah um, i think from a leadership perspective i think it is quite scary coming out of a large employer like the nhs and to set up your own institute that really redefines what it is to practice in an integrative holistic and data-driven way but also i think to to kind of convince some of the greatest minds and most respected academics to join you in that journey and having a kind of a belief that is sincere and not money-driven, but impact-driven, and to create a team that has done great work in changing the way that we think of uh, human performance science and its application to really helping the very sickest patients. And that's really the most wonderful part about what we do in our institute. It was new. It really was new at the time. And and this year, we're now hearing kind of the very, very first people who are going to be appointed as exercise oncologists. We're hearing about metabolism and cardiorespiratory fitness being a fundamental part of the way we treat cancer. We're getting validation at a molecular and research understanding level of why that stuff all works. We're seeing drugs which are targeting some of these pathways now, like yes. BPM 31510, which uh, reverses the Warburg, the fermentation of cancer cells, the thing that makes those dots light up bright red uh, in PET scans and how to reverse that, that phenomenon. It's kind of wonderful after a decade or just over to have those principles materialize into things that are being recognized and researched, the work being published in peer-reviewed journals and kind of the world can now see that it's not just about blockbuster drugs, it's actually about treating the patient as if they were a high-performance machine, like an airplane, which we are. I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely exciting times. A lot of uh, things validating the work that you and your team are up to, Jack. Tell us about an exciting project or focus that you're working on. So again, I think on the cancer theme, the thing that is the most exciting thing right now is the result of a neighbor of mine, actually, in London, um, who I was introduced to through, to through the tech community. She was a very famous politician who sadly died um, in March of this year. Her name was mm. Baroness Tessa Jowell. Mm. And uh, she, she died, sadly, although every possible option being offered to her to try and address her glioblastoma multiforme, the brain cancer she, she died from, was probably one of the most aggressive cancers that exists, as, as well as the most aggressive brain tumor. We started, obviously, with her initiation, the UK Brain Cancer Mission. And that has now been named the Tessa Jowell Brain Cancer Mission. And it really has become a real, more than a moonshot, a true um, multi-stakeholder, fully integrated effort to try and crack cure an incurable disease within the next five years. And that is incredible when government, research, charity, the tech sector, the pharma sector, entrepreneurs, big company execs, both all the credible people and all the incredible people rally around a particular challenge. And I've been most honored, I think, to be have been appointed the lead for AI and technology for that effort alongside an extremely esteemed group of people 
that are trying to transform the way we research glioblastoma and brain cancers for adults and children at a research and science level. I work at a very strong working group looking at next generation adaptive trials, which really kind of redefine the randomized trial model. The patient experience group, which for the first time is putting patients very much um, equal first with all of our science and clinical and sort of economic basis for treating complex disease. And finally, next generation training for computational and molecular oncologists. It's an incredible project. It's a beast, both politically and technically and medically, but it's probably the most exciting thing that I've seen in cancer research, indeed in medical research, in, in the last 20 years that I've been a doctor and 30 years that I've been a geek. <laughs> I love it. No, I think it's wonderful. Congratulations on that appointment. And it sounds like the organization, the foundation is being driven by a lot of uh, highly credible and motivated people. And it's amazing what results when, when something like that happens. So I definitely wish you guys the best with those efforts. I know that great things will come. I and, very much hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack, so, so let's, uh, getting close to the end of our, of our time together here, let's pretend you and I are building a medical leadership course on what it takes to be successful in the business of healthcare. It's the 101 of Dr. Jack. And so <laughs> we've got five questions, lightning round style for you, followed by a book that you right. recommend to the listeners. You ready? Excellent. Good. All right. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Train doctors as data scientists as well as clinicians. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Making sure that the financial and business incentives are not aligned to the technology. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? Constantly remembering to forget what you've learned or at least acknowledge that it's already old. What is one area of focus that drives everything in your organization? The grand challenges in healthcare, the things that are going to crush not only economies, but also cause the greatest burden to people and their families. And finally, what is your number one success habit? Hiring the best operators as well as the best uh, tech folk. <laughs> Love that. And Jack, what, what would you say your, your book that you recommend to the listeners as part of this syllabus is? I think very much aligned to your syllabus, I would say read Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. Love that. Folks, uh, to get a link to this book, a copy of the transcript of our discussion today, as well as your mini syllabus, go to Outcomes Rocket. Dot health and you'll find all that there. Just search for Dr. Jack and you'll find it there. Before we conclude, Jack, I'd love if you could just share your closing thought and then the best place for the listeners to get in touch with or follow you. Sure. Well, to get in touch with me, I think just Google me. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there, lectures and talks and uh, interviews with some of the most inspiring people that I've met. And obviously, anyone's welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter or the usual, the usual kind of social media channels. And my, my, my final thought really is we have in healthcare a golden opportunity to change for the better. It is disruptable without being disruptive. And I think that it's just probably of all the industries at the moment, the most in need of new thinking. And it is the industry that will see by far the most benefit. And obviously, because it's really a very human thing, 
I think it's probably the thing that the cleverest people in the world should be focusing on. But I would say that. <laughs> I love it, Jack. Hey, well, I, I certainly am uh, excited to share this interview with our listeners. I know that you're on the road today, so I appreciate you carving out the time to, to speak with us and uh, looking forward to staying in touch. It's been a real pleasure and uh, hopefully there'll be more to come. It'd be really wonderful to see how this turns into a real action. Consider it done, my friend. I'll chat <laughs> with you soon. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.